Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. The Johnny Depp vs. Amber Heard defamation trial ended on May 27th after six weeks of courtroom testimony, media speculation, and social media disinformation. At the time that this episode was taped, it was just a few days after the trial ended and a jury had not yet returned its verdict. In fact, it was probably just an hour after I recorded this interview that the jury came back finding both Amber Heard and Johnny Depp liable for defamation in their lawsuits against each other. The jury found that Heard defamed Depp in three separate statements in the Washington Post op-ed and that Depp defamed Heard with one statement his attorney made. Ultimately, the jury awarded Depp $10 million in damages, $5 million in punitive damages, and the jury awarded Heard $2 million in damages and no money for punitive damages. Given the amount of publicity that the case had received and how it was being framed within the broader Me Too movement, I thought it was important to have an expert give us more context for what this case tells us about sexual violence more broadly, our justice system, and gender inequality. So here is that interview with Dr. Nicole Badera. Dr. Nicole Badera is a sociologist whose research broadly focuses on how our social structures contribute to survivor's trauma and make sexual violence more likely to occur in the future. Her scholarship has influenced sexual violence prevention programming across the country, including for Planned Parenthood, and her work has been featured in many popular outlets, including the New York Times, NPR, BBC, CNN, Time Magazine, Slate, USA Today, and Teen Vogue. Welcome, Dr. Nicole Badera. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be back. Yes, yes. So the last time you were on um, was last year in March. That was episode 20 for folks who want to go back and listen on Spotify, Apple, wherever you stream podcasts. And we were talking about sexual violence kind of more broadly. Um, I wanted to name that episode something that you said, which is that we all know and love a rapist. Uh, But I guess my producers were like, "Mm, maybe this is not the best. (laughs) our community radio um but you know i think that really kind of frames out something that we've been seeing in this case especially as we're thinking about johnny depp someone that a lot of us you know feel like we know as a celebrity and from all his different roles and we love him i mean i love the pirates of the caribbean franchise and so i think that is also coming into play in a lot of the conversations and perspectives that people are having. Um, And so I wanted to just kind of quickly just give an overview of their relationship and kind of what got us to this point. Um, And then I want to spend more time, you know, getting your thoughts on everything that's happening and really what it's telling us about sexual violence. Um, So for folks who maybe don't know all the intricacies of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's relationship, um, they were married in 2015 and then filed for divorce just a year later. And that divorce was then finalized in 2017. Then in 2018, um, Amber Heard writes this Washington Post op-ed about sexual violence um, that she's experienced. She doesn't name um, Johnny Depp specifically, um, but of course there's this assumption and he took it as an assumption that this was an attack on him. And so he files a defamation lawsuit in 2019, $50 million in damages. And then in 2021, Heard countersues for $100 million. And so that kind of brings us to where we are now in this defamation trial. So just like a really quick, you know, in a nutshell, but this is where we are now. And I'm wondering from your point of view and your expertise, if you could just kind of give us kind of your initial thoughts when this case started to surface. Yeah, that was a great overview. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, My initial thoughts were just, I'm trying to think of the most delicate way to put this. 
But the thing that I originally thought after reading the op-ed was this is not about the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. This is not about trying to shame or humiliate a perpetrator. If you read the op-ed in context, Amber Heard is identifying as a survivor to make a political point mm-hmm. that survivors often aren't just not supported, but can be punished for leaving an abusive partner. And then she speaks almost exclusively to her own experience of navigating her career as an outspoken survivor. This type of speech has, we should think about it as protected free speech, that survivors own their own stories, have the right to tell their own life biographies, which are shaped by the violence they've experienced. And so that to me is the most important part of this case is making sure that we have clear legal precedent that survivors are allowed to identify as survivors in an op-ed or at a political rally or at a fundraiser for a rape crisis center or the YWCA, things that historically have been just sort of assumed that you can do that. And I want to say that it's been assumed you can do it, but also I do want to say that there is a big legacy in this case, um, not just of this case, but before that of perpetrators seeing survivors healing, feeling empowered to tell their stories as a personal attack and as a personal threat. This is not the first defamation case like this, not by a long shot, but it's really important that we protect survivors in this particular case. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it's important for people to kind of go to the source, right? To read the op-ed, I think it's important for folks to have watched, so much of this case was live streamed, right? To, to watch it versus getting other people's opinions about kind of little tidbits or sound bites. Because I think that's also where a lot of the confusion comes in and a lot of the disinformation comes into play as well. Um, even in the op-ed, you know, Amber Heard writes, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. And so to your point of this should have been protected free speech here, she's trying to speak as a survivor um, and get some momentum around support for survivors. But even in the wake of this op-ed, we really see that wrath for women who speak out and that's played out over the past six weeks. Um, I wanted to kind of have you, if you could, kind of what do you see as the biggest pieces of misinformation or um, corrections that we need to understand as a culture, as a society? Because I think so many people are tuned in, um, I don't want to say to this case, but to the ideas of this case. Um, And this could be a really instructive moment for folks. On the other hand, like you said, this could also be a moment where we're seeing um, protections for free speech kind of rolled back as well. It's so hard to know even where to start because in this case, there's been so much misinformation. Some, I think, coming from well-intentioned people who maybe shouldn't have been chiming in, right? Mm -hmm. So originally this case was treated as sort of celebrity gossip, sort of tabloid stuff. And you had a lot of TikTok influencers or podcasters that streamed to YouTube that just picked up this case because they follow The Bachelor usually, or because they have a podcast about dating advice, you know, something like that. And they featured each other on each other's shows, which created this web of misinformation that I don't think was necessarily maliciously intended, but has a malicious impact, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. And true crime podcasters as well, who are looking for that one, you know, the smoking gun, that Sherlock Holmes kind of moment (laughs) where- this piece of evidence that looks irrelevant just blows the whole case wide open. That's really damaging in these types of cases where victims are already blamed and disbelieved to be so flippant about things like a makeup palette or, you know, many of these other examples of moments that blew up, you know, suggesting that Amber Heard was doing cocaine on the stand when that's definitely not true. So (laughs) we have these examples of these kind of big misinformation moments that come from the memification of this trial. Right. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, We also have misinformation that's being spread more intentionally and maliciously by extremist groups like men's rights activists, by the alt-right, who very often do get involved in these cases as a way to radicalize people who right now don't share a far-right ideology, but 
do have sexist beliefs. They see it as a way to peel them off. Um, it's one of the underlying traits in a lot of people who originally in 2016 supported Bernie Sanders, but ended up Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were radicalized through the coverage of Gamergate, mm-hmm. which if you can remember back to this time is a really similar issue where it's about a relationship between a man and a woman where the woman is trying to leave that relationship and the man is holding her back and criticizing her career and trying to derail her as she leaves. And so the misinformation machine already existed from moments like Gamergate and it was put right back into working order for this case. And the type of misinformation and disinformation shared in that context has a lot broader implications for things like how we understand intimate partner violence. So if there's one myth that I could jump on immediately, it's simply the idea that all violence in a relationship is abusive. This might sound a little counterintuitive, so hear me out. Uh, The context of violence really matters. Mutual abuse is something that a lot of feminist scholars, myself included, do not believe exists, but rather that it's a way of blaming victims who defend themselves against violent attacks. Now, for a second, I want you, if you don't have any personal experiences, which I imagine plenty of listeners do, but if you don't have any personal experiences with this type of violence, just imagine what we're asking of survivors right now when we say that self-defense is a form of abuse itself. It really asking to just accept whatever violence takes place to never, if someone is violently attacking you to use a foot to kick that person back or to use a hand to push them back to never. I mean, one thing that I keep talking about in this case is that that self-defense often looks a little bit different than we expect. Right. And so to give just a hypothetical example, this has nothing to do with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, but often victims can recognize the violent patterns in their perpetrators, especially if they've been in a relationship that's been violent for a while. So for example, intimate partner violence is very likely to happen after a perpetrator's favorite football team loses. This is an empirical fact. (laughs) We know that this takes place. Um, Super Bowl Sunday is a very common day for intimate partner violence in the United States. And so if you're a victim who knows the team lost, my perpetrator has been drinking, And once it reaches a certain time of night, he's likely to attack me while I'm asleep in my bed. There, self-defense might look something like a victim actually provoking an attack in advance while they are awake and can defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So it'll be less violent. So it'll be potentially less dangerous. So that's a piece of disinformation that's been spread is that that would be considered being a mutual abuser, that you are violent too, but it's not taking into consideration the power dynamics in the couple and what the goals of the violence are. If the goal is self-protection and self-defense, that's really different than trying to get control over another person, which is the hallmark of abuse. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you brought up this term mutual abuse, because that's what I see so many people talking about. Well, both of them were toxic, right? It's both of them. They're both doing it. And so therefore, I guess it equals each other out or cancels each other out. Um, And that's what I kept hearing from a lot of people who um, I would identify and I think who also self-identify as feminists, right? And you know, I will say the good thing is I've also seen a lot of people push back, you know, about that saying like mutual abuse doesn't exist and talking about some of the things that you just did about how the context matters. And not only that, but also the power dynamics, which I think is missing out of a lot of the conversations or the way I've seen kind of everyday folks kind of talking about this, which is that it is power, right? This is a power dynamic. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that in the context of um, gender inequality more broadly and kind of what we see, you know, in this case specifically, but also as it might apply to other folks in these types of situations as well. This is such a good question. (laughs) I think it's something that the Me Too movement, we've gotten a lot of gains from the discussions around Me Too. But one thing that I noticed partway through the media coverage is that gender got stripped out of the story. That often we're talking about cases of workplace harassment, where when we're talking about power disparities, we're talking about a Harvey Weinstein who is a gatekeeper for an entire industry in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And he's using his power as a gatekeeper to abuse victims. But we weren't talking about his power as a man towards victims who are women. And this is true across the spectrum that these power dynamics of gender are really, really strong. So for example, men can be abused 
we do know this, but when men are abused, especially in cases of sexual assault, there tends to still be a power disparity at play where they might be a queer man and their perpetrator is straight. They might be a child and their perpetrator is an adult. And so power is really central to understanding why in our interpersonal relationships, one person is capable of violence to control and the other person can't stop it. Mm -hmm. And gender is really, really crucial here. So looking at the gender dynamics playing out in this case, for example, we see that the spectators of this case, as I like to call them, mm-hmm. have really different rules that they're applying to Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard. So right before jumping on this, this conversation, I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from a Johnny Depp defender who said, you know, we actually do believe that he was violent. We don't think he was perfect. What we're angry about is her exaggeration of how violent he was. Mm. that's a really different set of rules than they're applying to her, right? Right. That tweet had thousands of likes and that's very different from the standard, which is if Amber Heard ever used any kind of violence as self-defense, if she ever threw a bottle back at Johnny Depp, for example, is one of the moments that's gotten a lot of attention, Mm -hmm. then she is a monster. She is not allowed to ever do this. And that's our gendered beliefs that men are allowed to be angry and aggressive. They're allowed to have outbursts, especially when they have been drinking or using drugs. Whereas women are supposed to be meek and quiet. They're not supposed to fight back. They're not supposed to yell back. And so those gender dynamics of how you're allowed to perpetrate violence and how you're allowed to respond when someone is violent towards you are really on display in this case. Mm -hmm. Yes, those gender dynamics and also the gender double standards of how you're supposed to react or how even, you know, a victim or a perpetrator, you know, what they should be like or what all of their, um, you know, responses should be, I think are really, as you mentioned, on display. And we see how Amber Heard is really caught in this kind of double bind of both womanhood or femininity, but also being a victim as well. And so she's really in a spot where she can't win as far as if she does try to defend herself or she doesn't try to defend herself or, you know, there's just not a way for her to be seen as credible. Um, So even thinking about how her accounts have been attempted to be, you know, destroyed um, or just kind of turned around where, again, that Johnny Depp is the victim And so um, I'm really thinking here about how um, this idea of, you know, victims or the perfect victim, right, is also being very much showcased in, in this trial. And I'm wondering if you could speak to a little bit about how we think of victims and how that really prohibits us from seeing someone like Amber Heard as a victim or even potentially stops other survivors from coming forward? Yeah, this is another very good question. And I think you're you're coming at it from the perfect approach, which is recognizing that there's this ideology of a perfect victim in our head, but mostly it's a series of double binds that if you fight back, then you're a bad victim, you're now abusive yourself. If you don't fight back, then you clearly weren't scared because who just sits there and does nothing while you're being attacked, right? Right. And I think Amber Heard's attorney did a really good job of bringing this up in the closing arguments, talking about these double binds, saying things like, if you take a picture, if you don't take a picture, the abuse didn't happen. If you do, then the picture must be fake, right? That was one of those key moments in the closing argument. And that really gets at the idea of what a perfect victim is. Actually, my first research project was on this topic. I was studying sexual assault prevention tips that universities give to their students. And I created this like pseudo world of what if you had to follow all of them at once? Is it even possible? And the answer was no, because there were tips like never be alone, but also don't trust strangers, never be alone with someone else. And so you imagine a student coming to college, you're coming from out of state, you don't know a single person and day one on campus, you're never allowed to be alone, but you're also not allowed to talk to any strangers ever. How could you possibly do both, right? Right. Just a really simple example of these double binds. And that's the problem with the perfect victim stereotype is it is sexist. It is meant to delegitimize all claims of violence. And Amber Heard in particular, She has a lot of difficulties ahead of her because of some of the ways that she violates the perfect victim stereotype, which I will reiterate is not her fault. There is no world in which she could fit the perfect victim stereotype because it is impossible. But one thing that I've seen a lot is 
people saying things like, we just don't like you, Amber, was a trending hashtag. That the idea that if you are a victim of violence, you need to be likable the entire time is something that's really steeped in sexism. Or another thing that I've seen is the idea of, well, Amber Heard doesn't seem meek enough. She fights back. We know that. We know that she uses, in her own words, ugly language, ugly words to defend herself sometimes, and that she seems strong and powerful and capable. And that leads to a lot of people dismissing her, which a lot of survivors will experience that, especially if they are, for example, highly educated or they're successful in their careers. There's this idea that then not only are you incapable of being abused, but on top of that, that if you have been abused, it's actually kind of fair. And that's something that we don't like to come out and say, and we don't like to acknowledge it, but it's true. We do think that some women deserve violence for stepping out of line. You don't have to spend much time online to see women like ourselves with PhDs, for example, who are told that we need to get back in the kitchen and that we, I mean, I personally have gotten threats of violence from the way that I've covered this case and the way I've talked about it that have a lot to do with my education level and that I need someone to physically put me down a peg. So we do, there are a lot of people in our society, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, that think that women who are strong and powerful deserve violence Mm -hmm. as the punishment for stepping out of line with your gender role. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important what you just said, where, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, these sexist ideas are very much ingrained throughout society and we pick them up. Right. And so, like you said, this idea that a woman who is strong, powerful, accomplished in some way that she deserves this violence or, you know, not deserves the violence, but deserves to be taken down a notch, whereas a man is allowed to be violent or should be strong and express himself in these very violent and harmful ways that it's okay somehow because he's a man. And so you really see this coming out as well. Um, I just want to, go ahead. I want to add something on that, which is, I I think it's interesting how couples therapy has played into this case, Mm. because this is something I've noticed. I'm really interested in all kinds of podcasts where I get to see the issues I study come out Mm -hmm. in a different context, whether it's reality TV or couples therapy, as I listen to a lot of couples therapy podcasts. And something I've noticed as a theme in those is the idea that if a woman emasculates her husband, that that is immediately what the therapy session is going to be about is why don't you make him feel like a man? That is part of what he needs from you is that you make him feel like a man. And so it's not hard to see how that kind of idea that it is women's role to make men feel masculine ends up supporting intimate partner violence when it's taken to an extreme. This idea that if a man feels masculated, he is allowed to do whatever he needs to do to defend his manhood, including violence. And we're actually, I think, pretty openly okay with that when the violence is between two men. Oh yeah. We really think you're allowed to defend your manhood if another man has questioned it. And I think implicitly we feel the same way when a woman has emasculated a man in some way, we think that is his right to do whatever he needs to do to feel masculine again. Even if we say it a bit more quietly or using coded language, that is what's underneath. And that's something that I've really noticed in my work since the Me Too movement is prior to the Me Too movement, when survivors were largely suffering in silence, most of the survivors I would interview at that time, when I said, how many people have you told about what you've experienced would say nobody, or maybe one or two people. And often their reactions were very negative. Mm -hmm. And now there's been this change, this idea that we recognize that violence is common, that everybody knows a survivor. However, um, what we've learned along the way is it's not necessarily that people didn't believe in this violence was the problem, but actually that a lot of people endorse it and think that it's understandable in a lot of circumstances for men in particular to behave violently. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the social media response to this case when people say things like, I do believe Amber Heard, but I also don't think she's a credible victim. I believe that she experienced violence. I also don't think she should have written that Mm op-ed. I've seen a surprising amount of people take that stance. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I think what you said really hones in on the issue was that we believe it's okay for men to be violent. And I think that is a shared cultural belief. But what does that mean then when it comes to these different contexts and situations and relationships, right? And how does that then come up against other beliefs that we want to or other values we say that we hold? 
and one more thing that you said previously that I thought just really encapsulates um, you know, this case and what we're dealing with is that the perfect victim stereotype delegitimizes gender violence. And I think that's something for folks to really sit with. Like if you believe that a victim should behave in a certain way or, or should say or do certain things and not do say or do other things, you know, what does that belief then support? What other behaviors does that then allow or excuse? I think one reason why this case is, um, you know, so causing so much conversation and controversy is because it's really getting at these kind of conflicting values that a lot of people hold and really making people question, right, some of their own beliefs and perhaps even some of their own relationships or the survivors that they do know as well. Yeah, I think the other reason that this case is getting so much attention is because not for the first time, but maybe for the first time on this scale, a lot of people are saying the quiet part out loud Mm -hmm. when they do say things like, we just don't like you, Amber. And so it doesn't matter if we believe you or not, we just don't like you. And so we think you deserve to be punished and humiliated in a public square. That's something that's really on display. And I do think, you know, if we reflect on some other moments that brought us to this point, the Kavanaugh hearing really comes to mind too, as a time where everyone was saying in the moment, including many of the senators who voted to make Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court justice, they said that they did believe Christine Blasey Ford, but it just wasn't important to them. They didn't think there should be consequences for that type of violence. And that has made it more normative, those big cultural moments like that one or this one can make it much more normative to say, yeah, we believe the violence happened, but we also think that's not a good reason to take away my favorite actor or the legacy that he has produced. That's not a good reason to not instill a Supreme Court justice who I like his values and I like the way he's going to vote on abortion rights, for example, came up at the time. So that's sort of the terrain that we're in is not so much people not believing Amber Heard. I think most people believe at least some of the claims of abuse that she has made in these various court cases coming forward, but rather questioning whether or not violence against someone like Amber Heard is simply permissible and that we should look the other way when it happens. Because that's really, I mean, what this entire conversation about cancel culture has come down to. It's not, do we believe this person has committed violence or not? It's just, do we think there should be consequences for it? And a lot of people think the answer is no. Mm. Wow. Do we think there should be consequences? You've really honed in on what this is all about. Yes, we believe you, but uh, we don't think that there should be consequences for this. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Nicole Badera, an expert on sexual violence. And we've been talking about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. We're really talking about um, gender inequality and sexual violence more broadly. Now, a lot of you listeners have probably been following along with this case or at least picking up some tidbits here and there. I also think that, you know, you mentioned before the break, we have all these big cultural moments that have kind of led us here thinking about previous cases, previous very high profile celebrity um, cases, and then also just kind of our our obsession with reality TV and celebrity culture um, as well that I think is playing into this also. Now, you mentioned something previously about how, you know, a case like this might actually lead to more radicalization, um, particularly thinking about kind of men's rights group or even like the alt-right. But one thing that I'm interested in is if a case like this um, might lead to folks being, you know, more in support of women's rights or more in support of survivors. I think that's up to us. I really do. I think it's possible because we can use a lot of the same tactics to spread our message more widely, to create more empathy and support for survivors. And in these moments, one of the reasons they can be so powerful is because the inequalities and the oppression that women face are just boldly on display. Right. And so I think about how the Kavanaugh hearing for a lot of young women in particular was a radicalizing moment about how unfair the system is. It was seeing it clearly. It was sort of cutting through the gaslighting because it was so blatant. And with the right kind of combating the misinformation that's out there, this moment can do that too. There have been a lot of headlines about what this case means for the Me Too movement. Is is this the death of the Me Too movement? I was quoted in one that had a title (laughs) like that um, alongside Harvey Weinstein's 
PR manager. It was a strange day. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was strange, but my response to this idea of does this kill the Me Too movement is that's it's really not up to the media to decide. It's not up to a journalist to run that clickbaity headline. It's up to us as the activists, the organizers, and the experts who's in my case, research is based in reality. We know what reality is. This is not up for debate. It's just up to convincing more people to see reality for what it is. And so this could be a really important moment to ask some tough questions. Like, why is it that so many young people on TikTok got caught up in this disinformation? And the answer to that is because while many of us were old enough, to be around and present for the discussions of Me Too when they were happening just four years ago. Some of the youngest people in my family were not, and they're the ones who have been the most enwrapped in these TikTok discourses. And the reason that they didn't get that information is because right now we're dependent on activist movements to every 20 or 30 years come along and completely reinvent the wheel in how we talk about intimate partner violence and sexual assault. Whereas if this were part of our formal curriculum in public schools to have comprehensive sex ed that includes teaching students what a healthy relationship is, what an unhealthy relationship is, how to recognize when someone's in an abusive relationship and how to intervene, not only would our society be more resilient in this type of a discourse, but also a lot more survivors would be getting help and it might actually prevent a lot of this violence to begin with. So in response to the question of what does this mean moving forward, could this be an important radicalizing moment? I certainly hope so. And we have some ideas about where to start. Yes. I mean, I think it's so important. I mean, I wish we had comprehensive sex education that talked about these important issues because a lot of families aren't having this conversation with their children, right? We're expecting someone else, like our kids or young people to just, you know, learn this information somehow to be able to create healthy relationships or navigate um, intimate uh, partner violence and know what to do. But how, like, you know, I mean, sure, there's the internet, right? But it's different when we're creating a culture that supports healthy relationships or a culture that believes victims or a culture that supports survivors. That's very different than saying, oh, you know, people will learn this somehow. I mean, <laughs> right. And then often that requires learning it through firsthand experience, which is part of what's happening if you've seen any survivors saying, I'm a real survivor and I don't believe Amber Heard. You shouldn't either. Here's why. That's a big part of what's going on is that survivors learn about the violence in our society through their own firsthand experiences. And it can make it difficult for them to recognize violence right in front of them that takes a different form or looks a little bit different. And it also means that when these cases get so high profile, it tugs on your identity as a survivor of saying, well, if people don't believe this survivor, I want to be believed. And so I don't want to be too identified with this person. In some ways, it starts to feel almost like respectability politics, this idea of, okay, this victim, a lot of people don't want to support this one. So if we all turn our back on her, then maybe they'll remember that when I'm the one in the public eye and I'm the one who's being scrutinized, which just isn't helpful and it won't work. I'll say that in the long term, it won't work for the exact reasons we've already been talking about, which is that there is no such thing as a perfect victim. There is no victim that everyone is going to get behind. And I think we really saw that on display with Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. She's literally a trauma expert mm -hmm. who could tell her story of abuse in such a clear and compassionate, empathetic way. But when you're up against a perpetrator who people are really invested in liking and supporting, it just doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how clean and perfect your story is. So this is all kind of a convoluted way of saying that it's really unfortunate that people have to learn about the realities of violence through their own experiences. And that too can contribute to some confusion, some misunderstanding, especially because perpetrators are invested in convincing us that what is happening to us is not violent. And that can lead to some confusion too. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it is very complex, especially when we, the average person is not equipped with the tools to understand, um, to really understand intimate partner violence to, like you said, to be able to identify it and then to know what to do because there is so much shame and stigma associated with it as well. Um, as we've been talking about a lot of blaming the victim, you know, and then trying to compete with these kind of broader cultural understandings of masculinity, of femininity, and these just different stereotypes types around being the perfect victim. I'm glad you brought up 
you know, other survivors who have come forward, not in support of Amber Heard, because I think that has been very powerful in getting other people to also not believe her as well, right? Because there are survivors who are kind of picking up on some of these, again, these kind of cultural understandings that we already have or beliefs about women or beliefs about men and violence. And so then it becomes easy to kind of, you know, excuse this all away. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about, um, about survivors, especially those who have been very vocal about trying to detail, you know, what abuse really looks like, or, you know, how you could identify someone who is being in an, who is in an abusive relationship, because I think this dynamic um, is really unique. We assume that survivors would, I don't know, stick together. Uh, but I think you brought out some key pieces around this identity part that really become barriers to having this kind of solidarity across survivors. I so agree with all of that. You would expect <laughs> survivors to stick together, but survivors don't. And we see this, this is sort of a problem of the patriarchy in general, right? That women often have, especially straight women are likely to have stronger relationships with some of the men in their lives than with most of the women. We treat our friendships as disposable, as sort of there for a season, but taking a second it takes the second seat to a relationship with a husband or a father. And so the close emotional ties we have in our personal lives to men can lead us to struggle to connect. And that, that's a much bigger problem than this. But it does mean that there's just sort of a lack of solidarity in general. That is sort of something that has always been a difficulty for the feminist movement, especially among white women who tend to hold very different beliefs. And that's something that I think is really, really essential in understanding which survivors are standing up and saying they support Johnny Depp and why is yes, some of them do identify as feminists, but I just want to say that a lot of them do not. And that one of the reasons why sexual violence and intimate partner violence are such useful tools in maintaining the patriarchy is because they reinforce traditional gender ideas. Mm -hmm. So again, if you don't have a personal experience, imagine that you are a victim of sexual violence. In an ideal world, we would expect that if you told your story, everybody would say what happened to you was not right. It was not your fault. We need to do something. We need to take this seriously. How do we make sure you're safe? And how do we make sure you feel valued as a member of our society? But more likely what you're going to hear is, well, how are you dressed? How much were you drinking? It seems like you've been with a lot of people recently. Maybe they just thought that you were okay with sleeping with anybody, right? These kinds of rape myths and victim blaming comments can lead a lot of survivors to internalize them, especially without the help of feminist therapy. I want to say like specific types of therapy, because as we've already discussed, not all therapists are great at recognizing these dynamics, but it can lead to this idea of, I, I should actually be more traditionally feminine. I should dress more modestly. I should have fewer sexual partners. I should drink less. I should go home earlier in the evening. I shouldn't be the last one at a party. And it's the same thing in intimate partner violence saying, well, but did you provoke him? Did you do something that made him feel emasculated or angry? Well, did you have a certain kind of tone when you were making that comment? Did you make him angry? Again, it's this idea of feminine submission that it, there's a man in the house and you need to be respectful of that. And so it's not surprising that a lot of survivors after the violence they've endured, especially if they didn't already hold feminist ideals, would end up more conservative than before. Mm, wow. That's the way the system is intended to work. But there's another reason too, because obviously not everybody supporting Johnny Depp is a conservative. There are plenty of people who do identify as feminists who are saying that they still don't believe Amber Heard. And one of the reasons that researchers know this can happen is because the realities of violence in our society, it's so ubiquitous. It feels so unpredictable that that can be scary and it can create a sense on a subconscious level. It can create a sense of control in women to blame victims because mm -hmm. that says, if I don't act the way she did, this can't happen to me. Or if there's a reason that I don't have to believe her, I don't have to believe that this happens as often as they say it does. It makes me feel safer, even though it's actually less safe when we don't recognize violence for what it is and we don't address it as a society. And so that's playing a role too. I've been really interested in, there have been a lot of survivors who said that they believe that Amber Heard was abused, but they'll pick a specific incident or two, often the ones that are the most graphic and that were described in some of the greatest detail on the stand, such as the sexual assault that Amber Heard described. 
Mm-hmm. And they'll say, I don't believe that. And when I hear that, I immediately think of this distancing. I immediately think that it's a way of putting up a wall to say, I just, I cannot manage believing that that type of violence happened. I just want to believe it's not true. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's, as you were talking about this, it was just making me think how difficult it is because there, this case and similar cases, right? Um, even if we know survivors, you know, in our own lives, it is really making us question so much about what we think we know um, about ourselves even, um, and not just about kind of society or or gender roles or or relationships, but about ourselves, right? And and who we are, who we think we are, and who we want to be. And I think this piece around safety is so key. And you see people kind of closing in on trying to protect themselves um, and protect kind of how they think about themselves or their own place in the world. And you see this kind of plan out um, through responses to this case. Um, so it is, it's very complicated because especially um, even if we think about, you know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, again, thinking about Johnny Depp as a person who people identify with as this kind of quirky guy who plays maybe some characters or roles that we really identify with or that have been important or central to our childhood or, or you know, whatever. And so just like a person that we might know personally who has been very impactful to us in a positive way we don't want to believe right that they could also be an abuser right that someone could be this great guy in one area or a talented person in one area but also an abuser as well and being able to hold these seemingly contradictory facts about someone as well and I think that's part of part of the issue with folks thinking about you know this case but then also perpetrators in their own lives as well yeah, it's absolutely terrifying to think that, and, and this is the reality for all of us. I'm, I'm here to tell you that we all do know and love a perpetrator of this type of violence. If you know a victim, most victims have relationships with their perpetrators, especially in intimate partner violence. So there's a pretty good chance you know the perpetrator too, that you sit across from them at dinner and that you've maybe invited them into your home. And that can be so terrifying to think about. We want to believe that we're all a good judge of character and that we can keep ourselves safe but we can't. And part of that is because we don't actually have a great toolkit for recognizing what makes men likely to be violent. Mm -hmm. So the ideology that we have most persistently in our society is actually also a myth. So we have this myth of sort of the, the perfect perpetrator, which is based in white supremacy. It's the idea of the black male rapist who needs to be enslaved, who needs to be incarcerated because he is less moral and completely insufficient of acting appropriately towards women. This is a racist myth. That perpetrator does not exist. But because that's the main version that we have, the jump out of the bushes monster that comes from these racist films that date back decades and decades and the idea has stuck around in different forms, the result is that it's really hard for us to see white men in general as perpetrators, but also white men who we're friendly with or even men of color who we're friendly with that will say, but he doesn't seem like that you know, stranger in the bushes, evil all the way through kind of so-called super predator is the language that was used in the eighties. Right. And so as a result, we're looking to the wrong things. We're looking to the wrong things to figure out who is violent and who is dangerous and who is not. And that can make it so disorienting. That's part of why we feel unsafe. One thing that I think is interesting is as sociologists, we're actually pretty good at predicting where perpetrators are in a lot of organizations. So on a college campus, I can make a pretty educated guess about where most of the perpetrators will be. Of course, not all men in these organizations are going to be perpetrators, but we know there's going to be a greater concentration of them, not because they belong to a specific group of friends, Mm -hmm. but because they belong to an organization that is sexist and prioritizes men over women. Usually these are single sex spaces and they're very competitive. And so that's why you see more sexual violence happening in specific fraternities, usually the high ranking white fraternities on college campuses. That's why you see it on football teams. They're high status, they're competitive, it's all men, but also in the marching band, which you might not think about, but marching band is a place where a lot of sexual violence on college campuses happen because the individual sections too are gender segregated most of the time. Mm-hmm. and are hierarchical. You're competing for first chair. So if we know that the best predictor is actually 
of somebody being violent in this way is that they're going to make a sexist joke and that they're friends with other people that will endorse that same kind of misogyny, then it might be a lot easier actually to pick out who potential perpetrators are in your circle and to keep yourself safe. But that's not the tools kit that we give everyone. Right, right. Well, now listeners, we all have this toolkit or at least some guidelines for us to be thinking about in our lives. Um, And that, I mean, it makes sense, but we're probably haven't been thinking about it in this way. Like, of course, an organization that is, you know, one gender sexist, right? Highly competitive. Of course, we we should be thinking about, all right, this is the perfect kind of breeding ground for this type of violence. But again, it becomes difficult when we, you know, have that friendly person, that friendly face, right? And we think, oh, they just couldn't do that, right? Because they were nice to me, because they've always been kind to me, because they never did anything to me, right? Um, Well, that doesn't mean that someone can't be an abuser to someone else. And I think that's hard for folks to wrap their minds around. Well, and this is where the hierarchy that we learned about during the Me Too movement is useful again, is to think about our own positionality is part of why we might be safe around a perpetrator and someone might not be. I'm not going to name any names in the story, but I do have a story to tell about during the Me Too movement. We had that in our discipline of sociology as well. And there were a few prominent male scholars that were identified as habitual sexual abusers of especially graduate students. And I remember talking to a very prominent feminist scholar, a full professor in our discipline who'd worked alongside one of these men. And she said, wow, you know, he had made a couple of weird comments to me, but it just didn't occur to me that he might've been doing worse things to his graduate students. And it was, if we look to the lessons we've learned, the Me Too movement, where you are in the hierarchy and the power that you hold really matters. If you are, for example, someone's boss, they're not likely to be sexually harassing you. They're likely to be sexually harassing their subordinates who they have power over, not the person who would be capable of firing them on the spot, right? And so it's the same thing. We often see that some of the most vocal proponents of men's rights ideologies on college campuses in particular are the mothers of rapists. And they very often do not disagree that their sons have committed the very acts they were accused of. They just don't think that there should be consequences for that violence. So the same thread we've been talking about through this entire conversation, but they'll do sort of a similar thing where they'll say, but he's so nice to me. I've never seen that side of him and I'm his mother. I must know every side of him. Absolutely not. (laughs) We all get a haircut before we go home for Thanksgiving. You know, we all are trying to put our best face forward around our parents. They do see us in some of our most vulnerable moments, but that's not on purpose. That's not what we choose to do. (laughs) Teenagers close the door when they're exploring their identities and the places that they feel most vulnerable and unsure about for a reason. And so just remembering that we all have a different perspective on different people based off of the power dynamics in our own relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that's so key. Again, bring in that power piece to it, right? Of course, depending upon, like you said, our positionality, our relationship to a perpetrator, we're going to see a different side of them. Because again, it is about the power relationship between us and the perpetrator, and then the power dynamics between the perpetrator and their victims as well. So I think that's another key to just to remember, right? This is about power. That is what is at play here. It is the power dynamics um, of the situation. Now, I wanted us to spend a little bit of time just thinking about what are changes um, that we need to be thinking about supporting in order that we can ensure survivor safety. So kind of structural changes, and then also thinking on an individual level, what are some things that we can be doing as well to support survivors or even maybe to be identifying um, perpetrators or whatever the case may be. So those structural changes that we could be a part of, but also those individual changes um, that we should be making as well. During the Me Too movement, we learned a lot about how our society is structured in a way that puts victims at a disadvantage. What we haven't done is change those structures. So this is a really good question. (laughs) It's really important that we think through 
what kinds of changes we need to make. And most obvious from this case is that our legal system can be weaponized by perpetrators to harass, humiliate, and punish their victims for coming forward, as well as to maintain contact. This is a really basic thing, but it is worth remembering that Amber Heard ended her relationship with Johnny Depp years ago, and now they just spent six weeks in the same room. For a lot of perpetrators, that is the dream scenario, is that even if you get away, you can't get too far. And so we need to make sure that our legal system cannot be weaponized in this way. Defamation cases are a clear example, but also the legal system as a whole. We know that essentially all victims that come forward and go through either a criminal or a civil case will be re-victimized and re-traumatized. They will be harmed rather than helped, and they're more likely to experience betrayal than justice. We need to change things a lot. And one, one really good example of this, there are a lot of different changes that a lot of activists would recommend definitely look into them. But one that's really simple is we actually know that cross-examination is traumatizing for survivors and it obscures the truth rather than brings it forward. That when we used a trauma-informed way of asking questions of survivors and getting their testimony, we get a more complete and accurate story of what took place. But Recently, especially in backlash in response to campus activism on college campuses and then also to the Me Too movement, people have really been trying to defend cross-examination as the only possible way to understand the truth in these cases. And it's empirically false. Mm -hmm. It's actually the worst case thing that we could ever do. We should not be using cross-examination because it makes it so hard to know what is happening. And so that's just one example of one of the reforms to our justice system that could make a big difference. Um, obviously, also people have been talking about things like restorative justice. I'm, I will admit I'm a little bit more lukewarm on these issues because already on college campuses, we've seen the way that restorative justice has been co-opted because a lot of people are interested in it because they see it as more lenient than incarceration. And so they see it as the, the way to make sure there are fewer consequences for this type of violence. But when we actually follow the roots of restorative justice, which is about not protecting perpetrators, but protecting survivors and making sure that their needs are met, which might involve accountability or might just be focused on safety and space. It might be focused on healing or being able to, I mean, on a college setting, which is where a lot of my research is focused, it can be something as simple as finding a way to get more flexibility from a professor, right? The things that survivors report for, they want to make sure that their community at large is well protected from their perpetrator. This is a really different set of objectives than what our criminal justice system is intended to dole out. Our criminal justice system really is focused on punishment. Mm -hmm. And while there are some survivors that are looking for punishment, most are mostly looking to just say there needs to be some consequence. We need to know that something's going to happen to convince this perpetrator not to do this again and to make sure that they stop doing it to me. Because very often when victims enter these legal systems, it's because they're still experiencing violence and harassment. So that's another big thing is we need more effective mechanisms to intervene and to make sure that retaliation isn't the norm for survivors who come forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think this piece about trauma informed cross examination, I think is so important, um, as you mentioned, um, and then thinking about restorative justice, which I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people kind of know, restorative justice as this buzzword, right? But then mm -hmm. what does it actually look like in practice um, is right. very different. So I think for people who are thinking about restorative justice, really examining what that means in practice and what that means in centering victims or centering survivors and their needs and not making it about the perpetrator. Um, so I think that's also key as well. I'm wondering if there's anything on an individual level as we're thinking about our own relationships, because like you said, we we know survivors, whether or not they may be disclosed to us, right? But there are people in our lives who are survivors, just like there are people in our lives that are perpetrators. And so I'm wondering, you know, are there certain things that we should be doing as individuals or, or maybe even just things we should be thinking about in our personal lives as well? It's so important we bring this to our personal lives, 
because one of the reasons that survivors struggle to leave abusive relationships is because they lack the support they need to get out. They lack that place to stay, not just for a night after one violent outburst, but over the course of an entire long relationship. Um, you know, I, I get this question a lot from just friends and family when they know someone who's in an abusive relationship is how do I support the survivor? And it's a lot harder than people think it is, especially in intimate partner violence, because it can be difficult for a victim to get away and stay away. And one thing that I see that we could all be better at is bringing patience to survivors whose stories will change because their perpetrators will change them. So if you've ever known someone who's tried multiple times to get away from an abuser, they'll have moments of clarity where they know what's taking place. And then they will also be gaslit and convinced to their perpetrator that the violence was normal or necessary to keep them in line. And they'll no longer see the relationship as abusive. That can be one of the hardest things as an outsider to make sense of, to say, what do I do? How do I make sense of this? Um, the simple answer is to always support a survivor on their own terms. Even if they're engaging in behaviors that you don't agree with or don't make sense to you, I think it's really crucial to be the person who's always there and always accepts, oh, you have changed your mind about how you identify in this relationship, then I'm changing my mind with you because you're the expert. And, oh, you changed it again and you need somewhere to stay again. Welcome to my home. <laughs> right. And so that's really key is to be very cautious about victim blaming. Um, especially in these cases where the power dynamics can make it so difficult to know what's going on. And then the other thing I'll say is that we get really concerned in these cases that look ambiguous from the outside, but really are not once everybody, it's hard to get to that moment of clarity, but experts have done it and we know what it looks like. But in these moments of confusion where you can't tell for sure what's taking place, people get really nervous about hurting the reputation of a perpetrator. They get really nervous about being wrong and spreading a lie. First of all, do not talk about people's experiences of abuse without their permission ever. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about is spreading the lie, um, which is probably not a lie, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is just think about what most of what survivors need doesn't actually involve their perpetrator at all, aside from safety and space. And so if someone comes to you and says, please stop inviting this person to dinner, that's an easy thing to do to say, I'm not going to invite you to dinner at the same time. Um, and that's most of what survivors ask for from their friends and family that involve their perpetrator. Other than that, they're looking for support. They're looking for someone who's going to hear them out and take their side and make them feel safe. And that's something that we don't have to wrap ourselves in knots. We don't have to see it as a moral quandary of what if this person was wrong about something that's not up to you to decide. And especially as sort of an ordinary person who doesn't have a ton of expertise in violence, it's really not helpful. And I will say that experts in violence don't play this game. One thing that we don't do is when survivors come looking for help, we don't say, oh, well, how are you going to prove that you were really abused? How are you going to prove that you deserve our resources? We don't do that. We just trust people because there's no harm in giving extra. Mm. There's no harm in giving extra resources out for someone who maybe doesn't meet the criteria for abuse, but was in a relationship that was at times scary. You know, all of these designations that don't matter. To professionals, but that I've seen people trying to parse out what's the difference between ordinary bad behavior in a patriarchy versus dangerous bad behavior. It's all on a spectrum. It's all bad. And it's okay to support people through all of it. And that really is my biggest piece of advice is stop focusing so much on what is abusive and what isn't, and just be there for someone in on their terms in the way they need it. Mm, yes. Well, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. So much great information as always. And I love these kind of strategies and just, you know, being there for people. I mean, it really comes down to that. And then definitely getting involved in some of these larger structural changes as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. A great conversation as always. Thank you again to Dr. Nicole Badera. I mean, every time we talk, I just learn so much. And I think this topic is very important, not just in the context of, you know, the Depp and Heard trial, but again, also because as Dr. Badera pointed out, you know, we all know survivors, whether or not, you know, we're aware of what has happened, um, what they have been through. And we also all know perpetrators as well. And so I think this is just something to be cognizant of, especially if 
in these very high profile cases where we might be tempted to kind of chime in in our, you know, uninformed <laughs> opinions. Um, but just to be cognizant of that we are in relationship with survivors, we are in relationship with perpetrators. Um, and so for today's positive note, I actually just want to reiterate something that Dr. Baderis said, which is that there's no harm for giving extra. And I think that's so important as just a personal practice to know that there's no harm in giving extra. There's no harm in giving extra patience. There's no harm in giving extra support. There's no harm in just giving extra to the people that we care about in our lives to make them feel loved and to make them feel supported as well. And, you know, something that I've been thinking about is, you know, we're, I asked about, you know, what can we do if maybe someone does disclose um, intimate partner violence to us or, or other types of violence that they may have experienced. And, you know, a lot of us will never get to that point where someone discloses that to us because we haven't created the type of relationships that makes them feel safe. So I think also we can be thinking about how can we make the people that we value, that we, you know, love and care for and that we're in relationship with, how can we make them feel supported? so that if they do experience something like this, they know that they could come to us and we would be that listening ear and we would be that safe space for them. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Please share this episode, share this show with someone. Um, you can always find the replays on Spotify, Apple, wherever you stream podcasts or on wyxr.org. I can't wait to have you back here with me next Monday morning.